Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. This podcast is about being black in America for over 80 years. It is Thursday, January 11th, 2024. And in this edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard, we welcome Cal Rastalia. He is the Promise Institute Distinguished Professor of Comparative and International Law at UCLA Law School. His new book is titled The Absolutely Indispensable Man, Ralph Bunch, The United Nations and the Fight to End Empire. I'm joined by 14 of my Harvard classmates. Bill Collins, I'm Harvard 63, physics, Navy, nuclear power, and then the nuclear industry, and came to the, came to South Carolina, where I live now, to work at the Savannah River site in nuclear waste cleanup, now retired from all paying work and do a lot of volunteer work in okay. Aiken, South Carolina. Alden. Uh, grew up in the East Coast, born actually in Mass General, uh, but now live just south of San Francisco. And my wife and I have a fundraising consulting firm working with nonprofits. Okay, John. Oh, hi. Uh, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I worked uh, at the campus. I edited the alumni publication for a long time. And before that, I worked for daily newspapers. For a, quite a while. Hey, Doug, Douglas. Uh, hi, Doug Shapiro. Uh, I'm a retired physician and behavioral ecologist. I studied the behavior of coral reef fish for about 20 years, uh, okay. a long time ago. Um, I'm living in Louisville, Kentucky right now, and uh, my wife and I are still celebrating the uh, University of Michigan National Football Championship. <laughs> yeah. Okay. David Lillibell. I'm also class of 1963. I am a historian of India, now retired, uh, mostly Muslims in India. Uh, I uh, I think it was my idea to invite Kyle because I was thinking a yes, lot about Ralph, Ralph Bush. Bunch. Um, I think I first became aware of him when I probably was about 12 years old and there was a biography of him in the children's section of the New York Public Library on the Upper West Side. Um, uh, but uh, and, and his name appears from time to time. Uh, but I was mostly aware, of course, of uh, and quite interested in uh, uh, what he did uh, with respect to uh, the uh, uh, Palestine-Israel issue, and for which he won, won the Nobel Prize, and I was uh, uh, so I I looked up um, Cal's book and uh, read particularly the chapter on on that, and it was very revealing and I think very relevant. Uh, we need a Ralph Lunch now. Good, don't David, we ever, David David Othmer. Uh, I grew up in South and Central America, and uh, actually worked in in colombia for two years in medellin colombia i was not working for the medellin cartel at the time uh, in fact i never worked for the medellin cartel <laughs> <laughs> That's good. they're hiring they're hiring <laughs> and then came back to the u.s and, and have spent most of my career in public broadcasting and uh and and public radio and public television in new york city and in philadelphia where we now live Hey, Jeff. Hi, uh, Jeff Fox, uh, now living in Spain, born in Chicago. Uh, I spent many years as a uh, sociolo academic sociologist focused mainly on Latin America. And now here in Spain, I'm writing fiction. Okay, and uh, Jerry. Good morning. I'm Pasadena, California, where it was a chilly 38 degrees last night, which is unusual for us with frost warnings. So um, after uh, class of 63, Columbia Law, then I was in the Peace Corps in Cusco, Peru, 
became an environmental lawyer with the Department of Justice, worked for an oil company, worked for the state government, worked for the Audubon Society, and I'm still doing work in the environmental arena, especially with water quality in California. Okay, and Groves. Uh, hi, I'm uh, originally from New York. I've been living in California for many, many years, and I'm a mostly retired psychotherapist uh, specializing in, specializing in post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, of course, I'm so hopeful to hear a, a voice of somebody who actually worked for peace and achieved a modicum of it for a, for a time. Hmm. Uh, and so that's a model that we would like to, to follow now, I, I would think, hopefully. Okay. Yeah. Ken. Ken. Uh, Ken Manister. Uh, I think Cal and I have uh, heard about each other for the last few years through... Uh, one of my all-time best and favorite uh, law students at Santa Clara, from which I am a retired professor. Thanks. Oh, okay. Good to meet you, Bali. Ezra. I am Ezra Griffith. I've retired uh, from the Yale School of Medicine after many years. I can't remember. Marcy. Hi, Marcy. <clears throat> and the introductions. Tell us about yourself. Uh, I'm in New York City where I run Clean Air Campaign and it's River Preservation and Global Fisheries Project. Okay. Well, Cal, welcome so much to have, have you. Thank you for coming on and uh, tell us about your life and about the book. Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. And this is such an unusual group. Uh, I... I did attend Harvard Law School, uh, though I did not attend Harvard for college, uh, but it's great to see a group of people. Uh, I mean, this is going back to you said class of 63, so a really impressive thing that you have. Uh, in terms of me, I teach at UCLA uh, in the law school. I also have a joint appointment in the college uh, where I teach in a program called Global Studies. And as a result of, uh, of a position I've held at UCLA for many years, kind of running our international relations program, uh, I've had an office in Ralph Bunch Hall, probably since 2007 or something. Uh, Ralph Bunch was a UCLA graduate of the class of 1927. So we're coming up on the centennial. Uh, and so in terms of the book, I became interested in him. You know, I had a kind of glancing understanding of who he was. Um, but really didn't know much about him. And when I started to spend more time in Bunch Hall, uh, I sort of got curious and I read, um, Ken, I think you had mentioned some of the earlier biographies and a couple of you mentioned older books. There's, there's quite a bit written about Bunch, especially in the 20th century. Uh, and while he was alive, actually, a number of books came out, some of which he didn't like. Um, but probably the most well-known biography was uh, was by one of his deputies, Brian Urquhart, in 1993. So I read that biography, uh, found his life super interesting, and discovered that we at UCLA had his papers, uh, that he had he had uh, had his estate uh, kind of, uh, he was arranging his papers back in the 50s, actually. I uh, went way back, but he wanted us to go to UCLA. So we had his papers. And so I started to think about a book that would sort of update his life uh, through uh, the lens, particularly of his work at the United Nations, which is really my expertise is as someone who's interested in international law and politics. And I had taught for many years a class about the United Nations. So I really was going to approach it that way. So I wrote what was, I guess, a professional biography. So I probably spend, I don't know, 10 pages or so on his childhood. So there's, you know, there's a bunch of things here and there about uh, high school and so forth, but pretty much it really starts when he gets to UCLA as a college student. And uh, that's significant for him because he loved UCLA and that was the place where he became sort of the person that he ultimately ends up being. He became interested in international politics and this is obviously in the interwar period and thinking a lot about World War I and so forth. And then the book spends, uh, you know, the vast majority of, um, this is the book, it's pretty, I don't know how you can tell, it's pretty thick. Um, so there's a lot of stuff here, 
And most of it is really his career from when he starts at Howard University onward. So I'll just give a little press. I know some of you are familiar with him. Um, but basically from UCLA, he goes to Harvard uh, for graduate school, um, which was really an extraordinary thing at that time. First of all, for anyone to be doing in the late 20s, uh, but especially for a black man from Los Angeles to be going to Harvard. Highly unusual. He did very well at Harvard. Uh, he wrote a dissertation ultimately about uh, was really comparative colonial governance, and he ends up becoming something of an Africanist. So he goes to Africa uh, to look at uh, French West Africa in particular for his dissertation. Um, and then he goes on to Howard, and he's a professor at Howard for some time, and he continues to write about colonial affairs. Of course, all of this being driven by his, uh, his kind of maybe deeper both passion and academic interest, which was racial justice. And so he thought of colonialism very much as a racial issue as it was, that wasn't thought of that way at the time. And in the course of doing that work, he really becomes <laughs> a leading uh, expert on African politics, which in the twenties and even into the thirties was essentially colonial politics. So if you had to understand Africa, really had to understand colonialism and he was the person who probably knew it better than anyone. Um, so trained as a political scientist, but he dabbled in anthropology and other disciplines. And by the time you get to the end of the 1930s, um, and I'm glossing over obviously lots of other interesting things, including his work on, uh, you know, many civil rights uh, organizations and so forth. So he's pretty active in all of that. Um, but for the purposes of my book, and it's focused mostly on his kind of diplomatic efforts, by the time you get to the end of the 30s, 1940, 1941, the war is breaking out. The United States is not yet uh, in the war, but they're getting ready. And the Roosevelt administration realizes that it needs, first of all, some kind of intelligence service. So the kind of predecessor of the CIA begins. And that organization, uh, there's even something before the OSS, but you might be familiar with the OSS, becomes the CIA later. They look around and they, as one did at that time, they call up Harvard and say, hey, who is a good person on Africa? We need, we think there's gonna be an African front. Uh, we need an Africanist. And they of course say, Ralph Bunch of Howard is the best person. Uh, so Bunch gets contacted and he was very happy to join the war effort um, in part because one, he was very patriotic. Uh, he was always a very, uh, very pro-American person throughout his career. Um, but also he very much feared what Nazi Germany meant. Uh, for the United States, for democracy, for Black people around the world, for Africa itself. So he saw this as a kind of mission and was happy to get involved. Once he joins the U.S. government, he never returns to academia. Uh, he keeps talking about it. Howard keeps trying to get him back. But he essentially stays either in that role or eventually he moves over to the State Department. He's one of the key people uh, in the State Department working on the, the U.N. Charter as the as the war progresses and the United States in particular starts thinking about what's the post-war gonna look like, the idea of updating the League of Nations is high on the list. And again, colonialism is gonna be a key feature. So Bunch is one of the point people on that. When the war ends, he's involved um, in the early UN almost immediately as a US official, but then pretty quickly he's given the chance to join the UN and he takes it partly to move up to New York and get out of DC, which was still a segregated city at that point. And uh, he's also a believer in the UN. You know, he was one of the people who helped build it. So he really believed in the mission of the UN. So he's pretty excited about the chance to move up to New York and to join the new UN. So he does that. Uh, and then from there, a couple of you mentioned Palestine and uh, the current situation, obviously in the Middle East. And so one of the very first things that he's tasked with, and this is a kind of a number of chapters of the book and you know maybe some of the most dramatic uh, parts of the book, though honestly Bunch had a very dramatic life, he gets involved in the issue of the disposition of what was then British mandatory Palestine. Uh, the British wanna hand this problem, which they've been dealing with for many decades to the United Nations. What do we do about the fact that there are Jews and Arabs and they both want this territory? It's all very familiar to us today. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot there, but the upshot is he ends up uh, playing a key role in the disposition, the creation of the state of Israel, uh, and then the mediation that, that ensues afterwards uh, between Israel and its Arab neighbors. He is the key 
negotiator after the first negotiator is assassinated. And he wins the Nobel Peace Prize for that. And so that that episode is kind of a key point in his life. Up until that point, he was relatively unknown. So in the black press, there were profiles of him when he joins the State Department, et cetera, when the UN charter is being negotiated in San Francisco. Um, the black press, and there's a vibrant black press at this period, um, would run profiles of him and say, you know, here's this guy, he's really the only black man at the State Department effectively. Uh, you know, here's this guy who's who's working on uh, issues related to Africa and so forth. But the kind of mainstream press does not really notice him. He's just not a big enough figure um, to have any real purchase in American um, life until he gets to Palestine and starts negotiating. Uh, so even before the Nobel Peace Prize, he becomes pretty significant um, as a figure around the world, really. And then when he wins the Nobel Peace Prize, he's catapulted to a level of fame that's really extraordinary. So he gets, you know, a ticker tape parade down Broadway. Um, Harry Truman calls him up. He becomes one of the most famous uh, diplomatic figures for sure. Um, and the way that I open the book is, and this is a sign of just how famous he was, at the 1951 Academy Awards, when they get to the Best Picture Award, they, Fred Astaire is the host, and they bring out Ralph Bunch to give out the Best Picture Award. And he actually gives an entire speech about the United Nations, about Cold War politics, kind of the depths of the Cold War, Cold War politics. Um, I'm guessing you all were probably in junior high or something at this point. Uh, and, you know, he's talking about what's going on in the world, the importance of the United Nations, et cetera. He gets to the end of his little speech and then he says, OK, you know, here are the nominees. And it's like Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve. And he actually hands out. Uh, the award to Daryl Zanuck for All About Eve. So he has this kind of crazy uh, level of celebrity um, <laughs> that really is hard to imagine today. You could never, certainly never imagine a UN official on stage at the Academy Awards. And I say <laughs> that I lived in Los Angeles for 25 years. No way it's going to happen. So that was Our a lot <laughs> of the sort of person he was. Uh, and, you know, he was from that moment on, a major figure in certainly international diplomacy, but also ultimately in the civil rights movement and simply in American life. Uh, and, you know, loved by many, disliked by some. He had sort of conflicts with Malcolm X, wasn't a huge fan. You know, there were people who saw him as a token, uh, who saw him as the kind of white man's favorite black man, but he was without question the most um, well-known uh, sort of diplomatic figure in the United Nations, for sure, um, but also one of the most famous Black Americans of his era. Um, but sadly, today, very few people know who he is. So part of the reason I wrote the book was to try to bring him back to life. And the rest of his career is full of equally dynamic and significant um, issues in Congo, in the Suez crisis, in the 50s. He's involved in the Middle East forever. He kind of hates it, but he ends up going back. I'm happy to talk about any of these episodes. Um, Vietnam, of course, is a really big issue for him. So he's involved in all of the key post-war issues. The U.S. government's always trying to get him back. He's on a first-name basis with every American president. JFK calls him up all the time to get advice. Uh, he's known to all of them and um, never returns to, to the U.S. government, never returns to Washington, stays at the U.N. until the very end. The other thing that he does towards the end of his life, and I'll just close with this, is he uh, kind of re-engages with issues of civil rights that were pretty significant to him when he was at Howard as a professor. Um, while he's at the UN, he generally feels, he was, he was a man of kind of great rectitude and sense of duty, and he felt as an international civil servant, he could not really be involved in American domestic issues. Uh, but as he's at the end of his life, and he had, he had poor health and he died quite young, um, though I guess back then maybe it wasn't so young, but he died younger than he certainly should have. Um, and as his health is failing, he's trying to get out of the UN and everyone's basically forcing him to remain because he's the key figure at a very difficult time with Vietnam. And so he uh, decides to kind of re-engage in the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King is someone who had, he had become friendly with. So he and King had first met, it appears, it's very hard to say exactly when the first meeting was, but it appears they first met in Ghana in 1957 when Ghana gains its independence, really the first African colony to gain its independence. And there's a 
coterie of prominent Black Americans who go to the independence ceremonies. Bunch is there as he often was as the kind of emissary of the UN. Um, but he meets King there and he really likes King. Um, of course, they end up both being Nobel laureates uh, and he's very much a believer in King's vision. Um, so, you know, if you were to compare Malcolm X to King, he is 100% on the King side. He and King do have a rift over Vietnam when King gives his Riverside uh, church speech kind of um, about the war that causes a big rift. We could talk about that. Um, but they ultimately reconcile and they remain quite close. And so he marches with King uh, in the South. Uh, he's there for the March on Washington. He's on stage, et cetera. And he becomes, um, again, much more engaged in those issues, speaking out. And he's often, uh, you know, in the press. He's someone that's known to all the top reporters. And so he often talks about those issues towards the end of his life. So that was a sort of return to some of his earlier visions, though, as I argue throughout the book, it's not really a deviation. So sometimes people see this as two sides of Ralph Bunch. There's this kind of diplomacy side and there's this um, side that's interested in civil rights and American racial justice. And I argue in the book that those are very closely linked and that racial justice is the through line in all of the work that he does. And colonialism was ultimately um, a successful or decolonization rather was ultimately a successful story of bringing a measure of racial justice to, uh, to Africa in particular, but to what we today call the global South uh, in general. And Bunch was very proud of that work and viewed it as a kind of moral and political mission. So the book really tries to weave those things together. Uh, he had a fascinating and incredible life. He was a funny and interesting person, someone who I feel like I've come to know, uh, even though obviously uh, I've never met him, but I've had the, the good fortune of meeting a lot of the Bunch family and uh, including his grandson, Ralph III, who's a very interesting international lawyer following in his grandfather's footsteps in some ways, uh, as well as many of the other cousins and so forth who live here in LA, uh, really uh, an extraordinary group of people. And so I've gotten a lot of personal anecdotes and personal histories. <laughs> so I'll stop there and um, you know, I'm happy to field questions on whatever topic of interest. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, in 1951, I was 10 years old, and I think most of us were in elementary school. Uh, we did not have a TV, so I never saw the Academy Awards that year. It wasn't televised until oh, wasn't televised. years later. It was only on the radio. But there's a huge video, which you can find. But my question is, going back to uh, May of 1948 with the creation of the State of Israel and then the subsequent attacks on Israel, where was uh, Dr. Bunch at that point in time? What was his thoughts yeah, this is an interesting and kind of a long episode in his life, but he knew nothing about the Middle East. You know, he was an Africanist as a scholar. Uh, but when the British basically washed their hands of, of the Palestine problem, as they called it, um, he's one of the only people who really knew anything about colonial governance. And so he sent the first stages he sent to the Middle East with a team of, uh, of people to try to figure out what are some of the facts on the ground and what should the UN do about this? So he goes over there. It's his first time in the Middle East, first time in Jerusalem, et cetera. He's obviously hugely fascinated by it, but also disturbed. This is the British are still uh, in charge. There's a lot of violence, uh, you know, terrorist attacks on both sides, et cetera. What uh, sorry? What year is this? This would be uh, 47 leading into 48. Uh, it's kind of this episode. And then the negotiations, the mediation is really of 49. So it's really that very end of the 40s. So prior to Israel's declaration of independence and then after, the UN creates uh, a number of different kind of expert missions uh, over the ensuing months. He's always the kind of key guy trying to figure out a recommendation, what should be done. And uh, in a way that's a very much an echo of today, the recommendation that his group ultimately puts forward is what we know as the two-state solution. Uh, and so they put that forward and then there's a lot of, this could go on for hours, but there's a lot of back and forth. Um, there's a UN resolution um, that uh, is voted up in November of uh, 47, I guess I'm 48, I'm now losing 47, November of 47, uh, it's kind of endorsing that idea. And a few months later, Israel declares its independence and there's the immediate kind of attack by the Arab States And throughout this period, Bunch is learning a ton about the Middle East, more than he really wanted to know. Um, 
And I'll just say in terms of his perspective on the basic roots of the problem, he was like many people who have delved into this, ultimately quite confused about the history, the sources, the Byzantine nature of it. He felt the British had done a terrible job, but that was sort of the only point of agreement between Arabs and Jews in the region. And he felt that there really was no good solution and that ultimately a two-state solution, though flawed in many ways, was the best idea. Uh, and so he did endorse that and, and sort of fought for that. Um, but he continued to be frustrated by both sides throughout the ensuing uh, years. Uh, even though the Israelis as a rule liked him a lot, he was well liked by both sides. Uh, but the Israelis in particular, I think, did pretty well in these negotiations for a number of structural reasons we can talk about. Uh, and so he was viewed quite fondly in Israel, though they were often also frustrated with him. Um, he was viewed, viewed quite fondly. And when he died, in fact, Golda Meir said that there really was no one uh, outside of Israel as significant in the birth of Israel than Ralph Bunch. Um, one interesting thing to just note about this is during this period, uh, he was attacked pretty vociferously by W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, but interestingly, Du Bois's concern was that Bunch was insufficiently pro-Israeli, insufficiently pro-Jewish. So Du Bois gives a speech in Madison Square Garden to the American Jewish Congress, and he basically apologizes for Ralph Bunch saying, on behalf of Black America, uh, you know, I'm so sorry that we have one of our own uh, who's not, um, you know, basically doing the right thing, who should know better. And it really made no sense. It made no sense to Bunch, and it really upset Bunch a lot. And Du Bois was someone he had looked up to enormously. Um, but that was the politics of the time. It was a very different kind of politics. And so Bunch uh, was, you know, sort of attacked in the United States by, um, by many for being insufficiently pro-Israeli, though that was not the Israeli view. So anyway, complicated story. Um, <laughs> but he continued to be involved in it uh, throughout the 40s and 50s. And um, I mentioned the Suez crisis, which you probably uh, remember was a pretty significant moment. Um, interestingly, this, I'm working on a piece right now, an essay about Gaza and the governance of Gaza. Um, the point of the essay is many people have talked about at the end of this conflict, whenever it comes, the day after, perhaps Germany has proposed, perhaps the UN should assume control of Gaza. And what's interesting is the UN has already done that. And it did it in 1957 for a very brief period and it went very badly. Uh, and Ralph Bunch was involved in that and that episode is in the book. So I'm sort of writing that up as a separate piece just to kind of connect the dots to our current situation. So I'll stop there. There's again, a ton to talk about with the Middle East, but um, I don't wanna, I don't wanna belabor one question. So uh, okay. sure. David. David, well, I, I, I would like to hear a little bit more about his uh, your your one of the chap the main chapter of, about uh, bunch in Palestine uh, starts off with his uh, 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 work as a mediator and negotiator in, uh, in in the Isle of Rhodes uh, between the Egyptians and the uh, and the Israelis. Uh, uh, there was a separate negotiation, I guess, that he wasn't involved with with uh, Jordan. Um, uh, but uh, he did work out the uh, uh, the armistice that took place and uh, created Gaza as a uh, as an entity within Egypt, in, uh, under Egyptian uh, control right. and, and so on. Um, and uh, it was difficult and frustrating. You described that very well, but I'd be nice to talk about his skills as a as a diplomat and and such. And there's other one other question. Um, you you uh, I, I think you mentioned the minority report uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, offered a another solution, which uh, I, I felt would have been a lot better, which was the binational state solution and i wondered um why he didn't go with that or uh, was it because he was seeking a compromise that would get the largest number of people or did he really think it wouldn't work yeah great question so, so you're absolutely right so the ultimate report that feeds into the vote that the u.n takes in resolution 181 
uh, calling for partition of the territory of Palestine did have a minority view and a majority view. The majority view was a two-state solution, though uh, the status of Jerusalem was an interesting issue, was often featured as maybe an internationalized city or somehow Jerusalem was always a kind of asterisk in all of these ideas. Um, the minority report, as you uh, know, was a, was a binational state with some kind of power sharing arrangement envisioned. And, um, you know, that was one where Bunch himself was a very pragmatic person. And I think his, it's hard to say exactly what drove his, uh, his first of all, he was the, in a sense, formally the kind of secretary of the group. He was the, he was the representative of the secretariat. The rest of the group that voted on the on the different decisions were all diplomats, they were all ambassadors. Um, so he was formally sort of like the staffer. In reality, he was the only one who knew anything. And he thought the group was terrible. He thought a lot of them were, first of all, anti-Semitic. One of the interesting and disturbing features of this is that a number of the members pushed for the creation of a Jewish state simply to have a place, and this was not an uncommon view at that era, where their countries could send their Jews. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was we can get rid of our Jewish problem if mm -hmm. there's some kind of Jewish state. So Bunch found that really disturbing. Uh, and he generally thought they were sort of, uh, you know, not the A-team in any way. Um, but he didn't have a lot of formal uh, ability to shape it. He had a lot of informal ability. I think his own view was a pragmatic one that he could sense the level of hatred. Um, he could sense that there was this very strong attachment to, to land. Uh, he didn't think it made a whole lot of sense, but that's what it was. And he, I think in the end, just felt like a two-state solution was the only viable way forward. Um, but, you know, there was a mix of views on that. The other thing to bear in mind is that partition was sort of in the air. So some of you may know that, you know, British India uh, ends up being divided uh, in roughly the same period into India and Pakistan. And what's now Bangladesh was East Pakistan. And so there was this idea of partition um, that was kind of out there. Um, there was also the problem of Germany. Uh, you know, Germany had been partitioned, obviously, after the war into different occupation zones, and Berlin was a separate state. Anyway, so there were all these models that were sort of out there pointing in different directions. But two states seemed the cleanest, I think, to him. Um, but in the end, he really just wanted whatever worked. He wasn't very ideological as a person. He was extremely pragmatic. Um, quickly on his negotiation skills, you mentioned, you know, roads and so forth. He was a really terrific negotiator by all accounts. And I think what made him such a good mediator and such a good diplomat was a number of features. One, uh, he was obviously very smart, very thoughtful. Uh, everyone who worked with him commented on how good he was at coming up with a formulation that could sort of paper over a difference or artfully allied uh, some issue that really couldn't be surfaced, but maybe was implicit. Um, he was very skillful at that sort of what I would call lawyering. Good lawyering often requires that in a transactional setting. He wasn't trained as a lawyer, but probably would have been an excellent one. So he was very good at that. He was very personally charming. People really liked him. Uh, he was fun. Um, one of his like techniques in the island of Rhodes, he'd have all the, the, let's say the Egyptians and the Israelis all sequestered kind of in this shuttered hotel in the wintertime. Uh, and there was a you know a pool table and bunch having played in the uh central avenue jazz clubs in la and so forth a lot as a kid was actually a really good pool player so you know he'd sort of uh they'd have some drinks they'd shoot pool he'd loosen everyone up at about you know he was kind of a night owl at about midnight or something he'd say okay you know let's sit down let's talk about this problem and a faux casual way, but he was serious and he would force at that point, they'd, they'd all loosened up and he'd get them to, to kind of talk. And then the next day they'd have a very formal session. They'd have their suits back on and he would try to ratify those things. So he was good at using social settings and his, his innate charm to kind of get people to be reasonable. Now, of course, you can only go so far with that strategy. It has to be ratified back home. And that's where his, uh, his drafting skills came in. But yeah, he was viewed as uh, as a very, very uh, skillful guy in a number of negotiations beyond the Palestine one. So that was kind of his signature thing throughout his diplomatic career. Mm -hmm. John. Uh, well, uh, first, let me ask you, do you know our classmate, Ned Alpers, there at UCLA? 
Uh, I do. Yeah, I do. Oh. I didn't know he was your classmate. Yeah, he is. Yep. Well, say hi to him to us. We should have him on. Anyway, you say that Ralph Bunch uh, wasn't um, ideological, but then I look at his book, um, A World View of Race, which he wrote in 36. And actually, I would say that he uh, really comes out of, you might call it a social democratic kind of uh, uh, tradition and his analysis of yeah. race. Uh, let me quote from this one thing. He said, race is a social concept which can be and is employed effectively to rouse and rationalize emotions and an admirable device for the cultivation of group prejudice. <laughs> and, and he also, uh, he was a tremendous writer. He said that uh, since it was arbitrary, racial divisions are arbitrary, subjective, and devoid of scientific meaning. And therefore, he thought that um, you might say a, a black nationalist um, separatist approach to uh, problems in the United States would not succeed, that we need a more of an economic interest uh, um, alliance of groups with common economic uh, needs. So I would say there's a germ, certainly of a ideology that he had, but it's just that he wasn't uh, doctrinaire about it. Yeah, great question, great example. So the first thing about that book is you know when he's at Howard in the 30s, he's in a really unusual place. So Howard University at that time uh, was just being populated with black faculty and had its first black presence, kind of amazing. But until I think the 20s, I can't remember exactly when Mordecai Johnson becomes president of Howard. Howard had always had a white president. So the faculty were white. Um, student body obviously wasn't, but um, it began to be populated with many of the best black scholars of the day. And so Bunch is writing that book in a context in which there's obviously a lot of thoughts swirling around along those lines, analyzing race and particularly thinking about communism, which was, you know, this is the 30s. So there's a different kind of valence to talking about Marxist ideas and communism. There's a lot of uh, this becomes a problem for him later in the 50s. But there's a lot of interest in uh, that connection between class and race. And I'll just say in that book, in the end, despite the title, A Worldview of Race, the book actually argues, uh, as you kind of noted, that race is really a kind of made up thing. It's ultimately all about class. So he takes a very class focused uh, analysis, kind of a Marxist analysis of race. All of that said, he totally repudiates that book later in his life. Uh, when he wins the Nobel Peace Prize, the, I'm forgetting if it was the YMCA or YWCA, one of the, I think it's YWCA, says, hey, we noticed you wrote this book. And it's honestly a short book. It's more like a pamphlet. It's pretty brief. Uh, we noticed you wrote this book. Um, we'd love to you know, print thousands of copies and hand it out now that you're a Peace Prize winner. And he refused. He says, I totally, the book is terrible. I never, I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote it. Now, I infer a couple of things from that episode and later things he wrote uh, to others and in his diaries. One, I think he did repudiate it. But two, he was such a savvy political operator that he knew by 1951 hmm. that book that talked in that way was not something he wanted to surface, that his life was going in a different direction. Uh, he was operating at the highest levels. And even though McCarthy had not really come into his own at that point, that was coming, um, he could sense it. And he knew people like Paul Robeson very well. Uh, and so the kind of things that Robeson would say in the 30s and 40s when Bunch met him, actually late 30s when he first met, had a very different sound after the war, uh, especially within a year or two as the Soviets, the Berlin crisis and things like that happened. So I think a lot of his thinking was both strategic, but also that was a different time and sort of academic mumbo jumbo as far as he was concerned now. Um, so, so yeah, I do think he was ideological at times in his life. Um, the last thing I'll say is you mentioned about separatism. That was a really strongly held view that he did have that racial separatism was a terrible idea. He didn't like Marcus Garvey. He didn't like Pan-Africanism, uh, which was a pretty hot topic in African thinking, even prior to decolonization, but especially post-decolonization. Never supported it at the UN or at the State Department or anywhere else. His view was always that race was ultimately, uh, as that quote suggests, a kind of uh, make way non-issue and that countries as they became independent 
should simply be countries with their economic and political interests and they should work together when it made sense, but there should be no racial alliances. So in that sense, uh, what's often maybe caricatured as King's dream of a colorblind world was very much Bunch's view as well. Um, so in any event, uh, yeah, he's complicated on those points and you can certainly find different Ralph Bunches depending on what era you look at in his writing. So I'm glad you brought that up. And um, it's easy to read that book, by the way, you can find it online, not hard to find it. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's an interesting book. My, both of my parents read Howard at that time in that period. So you, as you say, they had a tremendous faculty. If you look at the faculty- uh, Amazing group. Stars across the board. Yeah, and, and although he never went back to Howard, uh, as a professor, he would visit Howard. In fact, a few, you know, I tried my hardest to find people who had met him and spent time with him. Um, and there's, uh, you know, there's not a lot of those people around, but there were a number of Howard students who in his later years, Bunch, when he was in DC, he would, in the fifties, let's say, he would swing by Howard, and just go to the men's dormitory and sort of hang out, smoke, you know, shoot the breeze and talk with people because he really liked Howard, but he just never wanted to return as a professor. He was done with that stage. And uh, Yeah, it seems as though the process of decolonization after World War II was happening all over in Africa, in India, and, and certainly in Palestine. And what was different about Palestine? It seems as though all of those um, areas of the world divided the countries up in various ways and they've been not really completely stable. Certainly there have been skirmishes and, and small wars, but not the kind of ongoing chronic uh, conflict that we see in the Middle East. So what's different and what could have been done differently to, to make that more lasting of, of a piece? Yeah, that's a great question. I think if I could really answer that, I might win the Nobel Peace Prize myself. <laughs> but uh, he, you know, I think he saw, <clears throat> well, I guess, let me back up. I think one thing that was distinct, you're absolutely right, that there were lots of cases of decolonization. And in fact, there were also lots of cases like Palestine, where the territory in question had been a League of Nations mandate, which was this kind of league system of essentially taking the colonies of the losers in World War One and handing them to the winners. So the British got Palestine. Uh, it had been an Ottoman uh, empire colony for you know extremely long period of time um so that made it distinct from most colonies like there were only you know less than a dozen of those territories uh but um it wasn't unique to palestine so and a lot of them worked out just fine um including some in africa um in the sense of i don't want to say just fine like there were many problems but they didn't have the level of conflict and so forth. So yeah, Palestine does seem like a unique case. Um, you know, partly I think uh, it's the product of issues that really transcend even the League era. So even prior to the League of Nations and the creation of the mandate in 1921 or something like that, you know, Zionism had been a force in, uh, in the region for decades at that point. Um, and so there was, all, and of course, there were very few people living there back then. So, you know, the population was quite small compared to what it is today, but it was already a force and there was already significant conflict. And you have this kind of unusual situation where you have two peoples with both with a kind of claim to being the original people, both with a claim to being, you know, if you look at, I'm sure many of you have gone to Jerusalem, but if you go, you know, for example, you know, the Al-Aqsa Mosque sits on top of the Temple Mount and it's all sort of layered in this very complex historical way that's probably without precedent elsewhere. So I think that just adds to the sense of there isn't a obvious person to hand it to. Um, all of that said, many of the African <laughs> colonies that become independent states have multiple peoples within them. So most African states their borders were simply drawn in the late 19th century uh, at the Berlin Conference or in other European uh, you know, capitals with no attention whatsoever to who actually lived there, what were the peoples involved. And so they divided and grouped together. When Congo becomes independent, there's 200 different language groups simply within the state of Congo. So there's nothing unique about 
that. I mean, that was a common problem. That said, some states did suffer because of that. Congo being a good example. Congo almost immediately, that's another one of the very big episodes in my book, um, the Congo crisis of 1960 and onward, honestly ongoing <clears throat> until today, Congo immediately falls into civil war. So while we tend to focus on Palestine for many reasons, uh, or in the kind of Arab-Israeli conflict for many reasons, um, a lot of these other colonies also had civil wars, many of which were very bloody. And if you look at the history of Congo, for example, it's many more people have been killed there over the last 60 years, 70 years since that happened, uh, than were ever killed in any Arab-Israeli conflict. So it's just not on our radar screen as Americans in the same way, because the headlines tend to be dominated by what happens in the Middle East. So um, I'd say it's a really hard question to answer. There's no question that Palestine is unique uh, and posed, was unique in the 40s and it poses unique problems today, but uh, it's not the only one that has these kind of very intense uh, conflicts that reverberate even to the present day. Um, and I really would point to Congo as the most extreme example of them all. Thank you for pointing that out about uh, the uh, comparison of the, the numbers of deaths in one, one region or another. And of course, yes, we are, I think, overly focused on, on the Mideast, well, certainly because of the political pressures within, within our own countries. Uh, and uh, uh, there isn't an important uh, uh, Congo or African lobby in the United States, there certainly isn't our important uh, uh, Jewish groups and 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 even uh, increasingly Arab uh, voices are heard more often. So, so thank, thank you for putting that in perspective. It'll give me a chance to rethink some central problems. Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no doubt that, you know, the Middle East has always uh, consumed a lot of American attention. And, you know, to be fair, from the very beginning, you know, Israel's creation was supported strongly by the United States. Uh, and the UN and the US, from the very beginning, played a really powerful role in that. Whereas Congo, you know, just to continue with that comparison for a second, the United States has a pretty big interest when Congo becomes independent in 1960, but only when it only really becomes interested when Patrice Lumumba, the first prime minister, uh, who's assassinated ultimately by, uh, by opposing forces in the Belgians, appears to be leaning towards the Soviets in some kind of Cold War struggle. And then the United States gets really involved, but mostly to try to kill him to try to, the CIA hatches a number of plots to try to assassinate Lumumba. Um, there's a good book actually that came out this year about this uh, episode, and I talk about it in my book as well. It's not the CIA who ultimately kills Lumumba, um, but they certainly wanted to. And so, you know, that's really the kind of interest the United States has. It's just a pawn in the Cold War. Um, Israel and uh, its neighbors are a much deeper issue for many reasons, including, you know, oil and all the usual kind of things that draws to the Middle East. So, um, so yeah, pretty striking difference. Ken? Yeah, Foxes killed him. Ken? Ken. Uh, yeah, a quick question. Um, thinking about Russia and Ukraine, I don't know much of anything about Russian history and all the various components of what was the Soviet Union. Does it make any sense to refer to Russia as a colonizing force? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, the Russian view, uh, it, the Russian view is that Ukraine, is that there, there really is no Ukraine. That's the official line that Putin will put out is that there are no Ukrainian people. There's no, they're just Russians, essentially. A little bit like the Chinese might talk about Taiwan. Integral part. Uh, so, um, uh, and I'm happy to send you an essay I wrote about kind of the issue of self-determination that talks about this uh, very question with Ukraine and, and Russia. Um, you know, one of the striking things in the UN today and in the international debate over the war in Ukraine is how little support the West, which has been very strongly opposed to Putin's aggression in Ukraine, uh, has found in the kind of post-colonial world. So you would have thought if a colonial power, Russia, I think Russia is a colonial power, 
if a colonial power tried to recapture a colony, like if France said, we're going to recapture Algeria through force and claim that all along there's no such thing as Algeria, it's just part of France as it was for many decades, most of the post-colonial world would go ballistic about that idea. But they don't see it that way uh, with regard to Ukraine for some historical reasons, in part because the Soviets were very strong supporters of many of the liberation movements in Africa and Asia in the 50s. Um, you know, there's a whole number of reasons why, racial dimensions, et cetera. Um, and all of that gives the Russians a kind of superficial ability to say, look, Ukrainians, the languages are very close. They kind of look like us. The food is like, they, they, they eat borscht, we eat borscht. Like, what's the difference? They're able to say that and it's not crazy. Um, it's wrong, I think, but it's not crazy. It's a bit like, just to go back to Palestine, I think, as you know, many on the right in Israel, as well as in this country, um, Newt Gingrich being an example of people who have said, there's no such thing as the Palestinians. There's no such group as the Palestinians. Palestinians are simply Arabs. Uh, and the idea of Palestinian nationhood is a kind of made up thing. Now, Palestinians, the PLO, the PA, et cetera, they all strongly disagree with that. But a little bit like Ukraine and Russia, there is a superficial uh, or maybe more than superficial similarity, language, food, et cetera, those things are very close to that. So it's quite different than let's say France and Senegal, where there's a strong racial difference, cultural, like the wildly different. So that sort of scrambles a lot of our signals around colonialism. And so the image of colonialism in the post-war era, the decolonization movement as we know it, was about really overseas colonies, what were known sometimes as blue water colonies, a colony that was far away. And what was often unsaid, but almost always true, was that there was a racial dimension to that. And that's what animated Ralph Bunch. Um, white France ruling black Africa, not some uh, kind of Slavic state Russia ruling another Slavic state Ukraine. That wasn't considered colonialism. So anyway, this is a super interesting topic about what counts and what doesn't and why, um, but you're putting your finger on kind of a key issue in our discourse around colonialism. Um, which is it's often imbued with the kind of racial dimension that's absent in these cases. Uh, and that makes it harder for many people around the world to see Ukraine as a victim of a colonial power, I, I believe. So, uh, of course, there's also the neocolonialism. There's neocolonialism also. There's a whole discourse analysis of, of colonialism shifting to neocolonial forms of domination and control. And I think that, that needs to be applied to what goes on in Africa. I mean, we still see them, the United States and France sending troops even now where areas where they have precious uh, minerals that are desired by uh, our monopolies here and there and uh, control the governments, et cetera. So there's neo yeah, I mean, that, was, that was absolutely part of the story, a central part of the story with Congo. But as you just noted, it continues to be an issue. And, you know, you could say the Ukrainians would probably make a similar argument about Russian use of, uh, you know, various economic forms of control. But yeah, we normally mm -hmm. think about that in the context of Africa in particular, as colonialism being a bit of a, again, Congo is the best example or the worst example, kind of a bait and switch. It seemed like we're going to give, we're going to take our hands off the wheel and give you control, but actually we're heading in the direction we always wanted to head. And you, you have a very superficial, the Belgians, when they gave Congo uh, independence and yielded to, there wasn't much of a liberation movement actually in Congo, um, but the Belgians, just the political pressures were very strong from the rest of the world and Africa in general was, was getting liberated in this period. And so they kind of went along with it in a very cynical way, always intending to stay in control of the most valuable minerals, as you mm -hmm. point out. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's a whole... Um, additional continuing aspect of the colonial story. I keep Ooh, thinking of a dark episode. So I what is your... Russia relative to Cuba? Uh, I know there, there are other specific ingredients there that are different, but in terms of Russian aspirations and seeing an opportunity, uh, it's it's hard not to think that that, that wasn't a, a, a colonizing uh, impetus at work, though uh, they, they, they didn't do a very good job. David, yeah. what, David, Sorry. What, David, you had a question? Yeah, I want to come back to the Cold War issue or, uh, and uh, 
and how that impinges on all of these uh, questions in, in that era and in for Ralph Bunch. Um, and you mentioned, and I hadn't read, got to it, what might be in your book about uh, his disagreement uh, 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 with Martin Luther King about uh, Vietnam. Uh, now we know that uh, Lots in the so-called black establishment, like Roger Wilkins uh, and and so on, uh, Ray Wilkins, um, uh, also uh, opposed because they thought it was bad for the black community to uh, line up. But was at some point uh, uh, did Ralph Bunch uh, sort of buy into the anti-communist uh, line that defended? Uh, the war in Vietnam, and is, was that relevant uh, to other parts of the world, including uh, in, in Africa and such? And also, of course, in Israel and Palestine, when Israel, uh, interestingly enough, was thought of as a progressive uh, force and maybe dangerous to American interests in the, to, uh, within the ideology of uh, certain parts of the American establishment. Yeah, this is a really interesting episode. I, I think, uh, I mean, you all lived through it. I was, uh, you know, being born during it. But, you know, the Vietnam era obviously was, you know, hugely convulsive in the United States, but also, you know, elsewhere. And in the UN itself uh, was a huge, uh, in a sense, a huge failure, not unlike what we see today with regard to Russia and Ukraine in the sense of kind of impotence for the organization, unable to deal with what was clearly uh, you know, a tremendous uh, humanitarian problem, kind of problem of aggression and so forth. And the, the United States just forced uh, the UN to stay out of it. And it very much frustrated Ralph Bunch and also Utant, who was the Secretary General at the time. Um, you know, Bunch's views were very personal. So, so for one thing, his son, Ralph Jr., who one of you mentioned earlier, uh, was drafted. And Bunch, to his credit, um, did not try to get his son out of uh, the war or just posted to uh, you know, the Texas Air National Guard or something like that, which he could have very easily done. And in fact, President Nixon, when his son was, uh, was drafted, actually writes a letter to Bunch. You know, again, Bunch was, was on a first name basis with every American president in the post-war era uh, until his death. And so he could have just picked up the phone and said, you know, can you do something about this? But he never did. Uh, and his son goes off and actually saw combat. And um, so he was very personally invested in the war in that sense. He had a, he had a real personal stake, um, but he was deeply opposed to the war. He thought it was a huge strategic error on the part of the United States. Um, and he tried his hardest as kind of the key interlocutor. One of the roles he plays throughout the post-war period, but probably reaches a peak with Vietnam is that he is the person who's kind of the go-between uh, between Washington and New York. Um, he's trusted by every American Secretary of State and President. Uh, again, very patriotic person, always believed that America was effectively a force for good, even though obviously he had lived through uh, personally many examples that were contrary. He always had a lot of faith in the United States, um, but he was also the guy who was uh, kind of the most significant player, even in some ways more significant than Secretary General uh, in New York. And so he was always the interlocutor. And with Vietnam, he had to play that role uh, in a very deep way. And there was just nothing uh, good that came out of that. It was very frustrating for him. So turning to King, he, you know, he loved King and King's work. But when King gives a Riverside speech church, first Riverside church speech, first of all, King is castigated by the entire political establishment in the United States. The New York Times, the Washington Post, they all run editorials about how it's a terrible thing for him to be talking about Vietnam. Basically, he should be staying in his lane and talking about civil rights. Bunch says pretty similar things. And to be honest, I'm a little perplexed having read his diaries and dug into this so much. I don't know why he was so upset about King's speech because he agreed with absolutely everything King said in his personal writings. So it was purely a kind of pragmatic or strategic disagreement that he felt that, like a lot of people, King would lose support or the civil rights movement would lose momentum or somehow it would be problematic to be wading into these 
supposedly disparate issues, but they were obviously linked. And King made that pretty clear in his speech, what the linkage was. Well, thank you so much. It's been really yeah. great. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. This is just wonderful. And now I'll finish your book. <laughs> and, and, and please do send that that article you you mentioned. You yeah, I'll, I'll I have Ken's email and I'll uh, I'll send Great. it on. Okay. Thank, thank, you. thank you. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank See you, everybody. Take care. Thank you. Bye. 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 And that is it for this edition of the Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett, and I will talk to you again next week.